This is a Stimulus Network podcast. Hello and welcome to Eureka Nerd. I'm Leah Richards, 0.7734. And I'm Will Davis, 58,008. These are some real juvenile math jokes because we have a math special for you today featuring the brains and words of Dr. Katie Steckles, who is a lecturer from Sheffield Hallam University and a maths outreach expert. She's been doing maths professionally and in public for some time and knows much more about maths than either of us or probably both of us put together. Yeah, both of us put together. She's been doing it for a lot longer than either of us ever did. And much, much better at that. So all the way from the wild north of Manchester is Dr. Katie Steckles. Hello. 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 Am I right in thinking that you are still up in Manchester? Yes. Yeah. It's not the most northerly of north, but... No, I mean, I, I feel northern, but I think that the way it generally works is anything south of here I consider to be the south, um, and anything north of here I just don't really worry about too much. <laughs> Which obviously the Midlands yeah. would be, like, appalled by. Hmm. They absolutely <laughs> insist they are not the south. They are not the north. Maybe it's just a personal thing that wherever you go, you know that you are the North. You are, in fact, the focal point of the entire bilateral (laughs) European geometry. Yeah. I am as radically unqualified to talk about geography as I am to talk about maths, which is why we've asked you to come and join us. If you could tell us a little bit about you and maths and how those two things came together. Uh, Well, I studied maths at university and I did a PhD at Manchester and I finished about nine or ten years ago, some terrifyingly long time ago. During my PhD, I got involved in various maths outreach projects, and since then my job has been uh, essentially a mixture of maths outreach and talking about maths and making YouTube videos and writing about maths, and I now also part-time lecture at Sheffield Hallam. And you've also popped up on maybe some of our listeners' TV screens. I have, yes. Yeah, I don't even know how that happened, but I've done some guest spots on bits of TV programmes. So I was on a couple of episodes of Super Shoppers with that sort of consumer affairs angle of, of, you know, how do we work out the cost of things? And I was like, it's really easy. I don't know why you've hired a mathematician to come and explain this, but I will do that. (laughs) Um, And I also popped up on an episode of QI. It was the Christmas special for Series P in which they were talking about pubs, and I had a nice little demo that one of them had seen me do about infinitely many drinks fitting into a pint glass, which you can do with Infinite Series, and it was sort of a nice little stage demo that they asked me to come on and do. Uh, That's one of the bits of maths that always makes my head hurt. (laughs) Just infinities, bigger infinities, smaller infinities. If you then mix that with alcohol, it just gets even worse, so... I think so long as there is a supply of alcohol at a Christmas party, by the time you're showing off, everyone's having a lovely time regardless. Yep. <laughs> uh, no, I'm trying to explain an important concept to you. <laughs> <laughs> you had me at beer. <laughs> well, speaking of consumer valuations and stuff, we'll come to that in just a little bit. First of all, we've got a math story here, which... I don't know if this is something that's come up over the course of your many studies and the many outreach endeavours that you've gone through. Insect mathematics, a little bit of bee maths, has come our way. Yeah, it's a really interesting one. You very often see these stories that like, scientists have discovered that this creature can do maths and swans can do maths and all kinds of things. I can't even remember all the ones I've seen. And I guess this is the latest in that line of animals that can do maths. And I think the, the words do maths are in finger quotes there. Because it's 
almost always something that's a lot less impressive than they're making it sound has happened <laughs> in a study. And I think it's interesting because there are things about bees that are really fascinating mathematically. So they famously have this honeycomb structure in their hive, which is the most efficient sort of surface area kind of way to structure a hive. And there's lots of things about the way they sense direction and things like this. In fact, I think someone wrote a few articles for I write a blog called The A Periodical. And someone wrote a bunch of articles for us a little while ago about the maths of bees. And they were really interesting kind of topics to cover. But this new study seems to have found that bees can do arithmetic which is not what they've done. Uh, so uh, they claim that bees, that bees can do addition and subtraction. And it's like, well, okay, but what did you actually do? And if you read through the description of the experiment, they had the bees sort of flew into a what they've described as a maze, but it was essentially a fork. So they fly in one end and they've got two possible routes to come out. And when they fly in, they see a set of dots in a sort of picture on the wall kind of way that are either blue or yellow. And if they're blue dots... That is an instruction that means, I think it's add one. And if they're yellow dots, it means subtract one. And when they get to the fork, there'll be two pictures, one of which will be those same dots, but with one added and the same dots with one subtracted. And they have to choose which one to go through. And if they go through the correct one, they get some kind of, I think it was sweet nectar or something that they would enjoy drinking. As opposed to the bitter juice. Yeah, they get like a quinine thing that isn't tasty for them. And then they can fly out the other end. And the theory was that because when bees discover that there's a source of something they can eat, they'll repeatedly come back. They sort of just kept going through this thing hundreds of times. And I think they might have changed what the addition subtraction question was. But it's not addition subtraction. It's which of these has more dots in it and which has fewer dots in it, which is a slightly different thing to try and recognise. And I think there are kind of studies that do about the way that people recognise number. And the ability to recognise which of two groups has more dots in it is, I guess it's a related but slightly separate skill to actually being able to do addition. I think adding one is not the same as adding, basically. But this is the thing that they studied anyway. They discovered that if you repeatedly test bees on this same maze over a series of hours, they would actually learn this. And then if they were given a different problem, they could still solve it more reliably. I guess it will just be a sort of probability thing. But, you know, a higher proportion of the bees got it correct after they'd trained, again in finger quotes, uh, on this system. Which I think is interesting, because I, I guess as an animal, it's beneficial to know if you look at two piles of things, which one's got more things in, and being able to comparatively judge between different piles is a skill that they would need anyway. And I think what they were essentially learning was what is this experiment, and how have the humans designed the experiment, and how do I get the nectar? Which is what they figured out, I guess. Bees can't do maths, but they can do reverse psychology? <laughs> I guess, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we can say that they have proven that bees can tell the difference between more and fewer. I don't know how you'd communicate enough information to the bees to prove if they could actually do mm. sums. Yeah, like they'd see the first one and then they'd see another picture with a different number and then the third one would be if you add those together, do you get this or this? Mm. Like a mix of red and blue dots for add three, minus two. and It sounds like possibly too much information yeah. for the working memory of a tiny, tiny brain. Mm. You mentioned that bees are capable of huge mathematical achievements, like the most organised way of stacking lava together. And I'm thinking now of the ways that they communicate distance and direction for mm. other bees that might be out looking for pollinating plants. They do this kind of wiggle dance to communicate distance. And if there is a way of measuring distance by wiggle, that's something which then they could try and share with other bees? Like, is that a way of communicating a mathematical idea there? <laughs> the length of wiggle suggests the distance, right? So they can count. 
maybe. I mean, it's it's also just occurred to me that it could quite well be that one of the bees goes through this thing and they go left and there's nectar and they come out and they waggle to all the other bees. <laughs> hey, everyone, go left in there. Like, that's it's, it's left in that one. Don't don't forget. And that's how they're managing to solve it. I don't know. They don't mention exactly how they're keeping the bees. Mm. Like, what is the apiology behind this? Because it could yeah. be they've got them all locked up in tiny cells. There's a bee with a tiny <laughs> harmonica blowing through and they're passing tiny bee notes to each other about what is the best route. Mm. Bouncing a ball of pollen against the wall. <laughs> yeah, Maybe the bees consider this to be an experiment against the humans. You know, they're just investigating how the humans will behave if they do certain things. I don't know. <laughs> What is the bee equivalent of chicken run? <laughs> Great beescape. Um, oh, I, I no. can do better. Come back to me on that. I'm going to have something better. <laughs> something around like a honeypot kind of crime riff there. Oh, no, that's a, a heist movie. Okay. Mm. I'll have to edit in. If I come up with an appropriate bee pun for <laughs> some kind of prison scenario, then that'll come in later. But. I guess what's the forward learning from this? You mentioned other animals have been identified with this capability for doing maths. Well, yeah, for a given value of doing maths, yeah. Dogs and dolphins and a few other animals are out there that are reckoned to have brain space for it. Yeah, they kind of they often describe it as having approximate number sense, uh, which I guess might be this sort of comparative bigger or smaller ability to tell the difference. But I suspect there are not many animals that can solve actual maths problems. Uh, there was, I think, one incident of a horse that was seen to be able to do quite difficult maths problems, and you could ask the horse a question, and it would stamp its foot the correct number of times, and it became a bit of a phenomenon, and people came to watch it from all around. And then they discovered that the horse had a level, so they brought like increasingly difficult maths problems. When they started bringing like advanced calculus and stuff, the horse had no idea. And what they realised was that the owner of the horse was always stood nearby watching, and when the horse got to the right number of taps on the floor, the owner visibly relaxed, was like, oh, they've done enough now, they can stop tapping. And that was what gave the horse the cue to stop tapping. So the, the <laughs> level of horse, the, the level of mass that the horse could do was exactly the level that the owner of the horse could do. <laughs> but, but they were also like working out the answers and they would only sort of relax when the horse had done the right number of taps and the horse was just stopping at that point. So it was literally just a complete fraud. The owner didn't realise, like they genuinely thought the horse was doing all the work. I remember reading about that one in a horrible science book. Excellent. I think the horse was called Clever Hands, if anyone wants to look yeah. that up and fact check. I'm pretty sure that is the, yeah, that's the one. I mean, your description of approximate number sense and only stopping when other people around seem to think that it's okay to stop. This is my experience of maths <laughs> in education generally. So I relate a lot to this horse. Yeah, you just look at the teacher and wait for them to nod as you go, what, well, while bees may not have the true brain space for doing complex maths, it is alleged that people and people-type kind of animals have the brain space for doing complicated maths, and that is kind of the crux of the next story from ETH Zurich, where they are reckoning they can visualise the mental evaluation process and, in fact, figure out how much a human in an experiment might want to have one food over another, how the internal ranking system is generated inside your own squishy meat computer. Hmm, yeah, I, I thought this was... I'm not completely sure what they've actually discovered here, because it sounds like they ask people to kind of look at a list of products in a supermarket and say for each one how much they wanted it. And then later on they showed them two products and said, which one of these do you want more? 
and the computer was able to predict which one they wanted. Um, and it sounds a little bit like just training a model with data rather than actually having any kind of in understanding of how it kind of works inside the person's brain. But it may be more complicated than it sounds, but it just seems like, because it's the kind of thing you can do, this is machine learning. You know, if you want image recognition software, you basically, rather than saying, if you're looking at a picture of a cat, you're going to expect, you know, fuzzy ears and a tail and all of these things. You just give it a million pictures of a cat. And at the end of that process, it has picked out the things that it thinks are relevant. And then later on, it should be able to tell the difference between a picture of a cat and not a picture of a cat. But I don't know, given how much information they're actually getting here, like maybe they're saying, you know, if people thought they liked yogurt, then they might maybe want to buy milk. I don't I don't know what to what extent they're actually giving it enough information to be able to do that kind of big data style learning or whether they've actually got some kind of model that makes a more accurate prediction. A lot of it seemed to hinge on whether they were familiar with enjoying having this product from this supermarket before, which kind of doesn't explain how you work it out when you're in a Morrison's and you normally shop at Tesco. Or just if you don't want Yoplay today. I, sometimes you're just not down for a Berry Blast smoothie, and that's okay as a human. Yeah. I can say that, but I don't know if that would completely throw off this model for supermarket sweeping. Yeah, I think it's also making some very serious assumptions about what your thought processes are when you go into a supermarket. Are you looking at every single object you pass in the supermarket and going, is this a thing that I want? Does this spark joy? Like, you, you know, I don't think that's how anyone does supermarket shopping. You don't go in and sort of meander around looking at things and going, yeah, I think I would like some eggs. Like you have an idea of what food you need. Uh, you maybe plan what meals you're going to cook. You've clearly not been to the big Tesco in Eastgate because that is exactly how people in Bristol shop. <laughs> <laughs> just slowly pacing around, just thinking about whether or not they like things. It's how I shop in a 24-hour Tesco at 3am after being kicked out of a nightclub. You know, <laughs> you're like. Chocolate donuts, raspberry donuts, chocolate donuts, raspberry donuts, chips, Christmas tree. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, I, I suspect the vast majority of supermarket shopping is, I'm going to say, done while sober. You know, it's it's not necessarily as random a process as this. And I, I guess the decision processes may have been made before you even get to the supermarket. So I don't know if it's a model that's necessarily useful for the majority of situations. I mean, there, there might be some lessons about consumer, you know, choice and the way that people make those kinds of decisions in an impulse buy situation. But you'd need to also then be able to identify what type of shopper you have in front of you as well, I guess. Yeah. And what you mentioned about the machine learning, artificial intelligence kind of neural network aspect of some of the models that are being developed, when it is just saying this item is ranked more valuably than another item to a certain customer in a certain shop, if you go into a shop and you think, I really need to get, let's say, an emergency pack of toilet roll, I have five minutes to accomplish my mm -hmm. mission and then I need to get back home immediately. Yeah. And the AI has decided, you are here for tangerines. Here are your tangerines. I don't want these tangerines. <laughs> you ranked tangerines very highly. Here's some tangerines. There's only so much you can do with this model before the complete random aspect of human life has to step in and blow it right out of the water just the poor little robot like but you always buy apples yeah you only buy tampons one week out of four what but you always buy apples <laughs> yeah. i mean i remember there was a i can't remember was it amazon or someone had like a a shop where you didn't actually have to go to the checkout to buy things 
So it just had cameras watching you all the time. And if you picked something up and put it in your trolley, it then added it to your bill. Some some ridiculous thing, or it used like RFID tags or something terrifying and modern. And you could just go in and pick stuff up. And because it would recognise somehow you, maybe with facial recognition or something, and you've registered a bank card with the account that's got your face on it, then you can just walk in and get stuff and leave and it will automatically charge your account, which is a terrifying concept if, you know, efficient. But I, su- I suspect that that kind of place will have a lot of data about people's shopping habits. I mean, Tesco Club Card and all of these sort of loyalty schemes are essentially just a front for them collecting masses of data about your shopping habits. And you, you kind of log on to your online shopping or whatever and it says, here are the things you've bought previously. Do you want to buy any of these again? And I have genuinely, from time to time, just gone on and gone, yeah, go on then. One of one of everything. <laughs> just all the things I bought last time. That's efficient. I'll do that. Um, you know, it was just a normal week shop. Might as well need all those things again. But you know, sometimes when you go to the checkout, it says, "Oh, just uh, just checking in case you wanted any of these." And it always comes up with things that I've bought as like a complete one-off for like a present or something <laughs> completely not that I would normally buy. And they was like, "Are you sure you don't need any balloons that say 30 on them?" And I'm like. <laughs> Not, not really again, but thanks. Yeah, I bought a ginger wig on Amazon once and I've never stopped getting recommendations for products that you might need if you were going to dress up as poison ivy. <laughs> and there are other examples out there on the internet. I'll see if I can dig up a couple of links for these. But when machine learning and artificial intelligence tries to fill in the blanks, but not quite right, apparently when it's trying to auto-generate a landscape, it will add sheep. And when it's trying to auto-generate image descriptions, it will basically always decide that there must be sheep in a field, even if the field is obviously empty to a human eye. Because there's so many images of sheep in field that the two Mm. are deeply and intrinsically linked according to whatever (laughs) cyber brain it's got. It's only as good as the data set you give it, I guess. So if you Mm. give it lots of pictures of things in fields, and you know this leads to these biases... Things like if you ask for a photograph of a doctor, it'll show you a white male doctor because the vast majority of photographs of doctors are of white males, which is, you know, not necessarily massively helpful, but that's what it's got. That's what you gave it. So the algorithm has learned from what it's been given. Uh, I think you also get these situations where sometimes uh, the algorithms cheat. A friend of mine has done a book recently about big data and algorithms. It's Hannah Fry and the book's called Hello World because it sort of stems from her early experience of interacting with computers. And uh, she writes all about these fantastic situations where, for example, they were trying to teach an AI to tell the difference between dogs and wolves. And every single picture of a wolf they gave it was sitting outside on dirt. And every picture of a dog they gave it was on a carpet in a house. So it just learned that if it's on a carpet in a house, it's a dog. And if it's on a dirt, dirt ground outside, it's a wolf. And then if you gave it further pictures, it would get it right. But it wasn't doing anything to the actual picture of the dog or wolf. And it didn't learn anything about what dogs look like. It was just cheating. So when you start giving it pictures of indoor wolves and outdoor yeah, dogs, well, exactly. it's just utterly lost. Yeah, and, and I think it's a question of understanding how these technologies work and being able to use them but also having a human in there to be able to sort of spot when things like that are happening that if you understand how it's learning you can also make sure that that kind of thing doesn't happen yeah when the algorithms start being unintentionally racist and you've got to be like oh we've done something wrong but for the wolf dog thing isn't that just the process of domestication Take wolf, <laughs> put in house until dog <laughs> pretty much yeah it's not far off yeah biases does lead quite neatly on to the next study we've got from the University of Oxford, this one coming back from the 20th of February, which looks at 
allegedly one of the central ideas in economics, but it's not one which I see in practice in economics around me, the concept that equilibrium and balance is at the centre of any kind of exchange, which works based on models of simple games. They've given noughts and crosses or tic-tac-toe as the example here. But as soon as you start abstracting that out to any more complex model or game set, it goes right out the window. Which uh, becomes a bit of a worry in chaotic systems like a human society. Hmm. Yeah, I, I love the idea. There's this whole branch of maths called game theory that's to do with predicting people's behaviour and predicting how people react in a situation. And a lot of the mathematical structures and models within this are assuming various things like everyone has perfect knowledge or everyone is completely rational. And these assumptions all have to be factored in, I guess, when you're designing models like this. And I think the idea is that if you have equilibrium, it's something like if you both play noughts and crosses, tic-tac-toe, and you're both equally good, you will always end up with a draw. And this is a known thing about tic-tac-toe. It's a very simple game. It's been solved. We understand all of the possible strategies. And if both players are playing optimally, you will always get a draw. And this is kind of an equilibrium in the sense that both players have the same incentives. They're both trying to do the same thing, but on opposite sides. And games like this tend to be a bit boring, I guess, because as soon as a kid is old enough to realise that if they both play tic-tac-toe equally well, they're just going to draw every time, then they suddenly lose interest and want to go and do something else. So it's sort of trying to apply this kind of idea to economic situations, but there's a lot of reasons why it doesn't necessarily work, because obviously in a true real-world situation, it will be definitely a lot more complicated, and there's a lot of factors that influence decisions. There's also the fact that you won't necessarily have an equality of goal. I guess both sides won't necessarily be trying to achieve the same thing, but in opposite directions. There, there will be situations where that's the case. And I guess the classic one in economics is they're both trying to make as much money as possible. But in terms of like statesmanship and reactions between companies, there might be other pressures on them. So they're not necessarily both working with the same, I guess, symmetrical goals. Essentially, I think from my understanding of this press release, the paper just describes the situation and says, yes, so this all doesn't necessarily apply to real world situations. Great. OK, well, thanks. Thanks for doing this work. I'm glad that it's not useful anywhere. But yeah, it's sort of, I guess, a, a kind of crack in the door, isn't it? Since like John Nash developed the basic ideas of game theory years and years ago, and they've been variously applied to sort of political and economic situations, and you can sometimes use them to draw little bits of conclusions about what people's incentives are and what they might do. But again, humans are ridiculous and unpredictable, so who knows? <laughs> a running theme between all of these stories, if it's bees or machine learning or economics, Humans are just not to be trusted in any part of the scientific <laughs> process. There is a, a post that floats around on the internet about economics is just astrology for boys, which <laughs> I don't really know enough about economics to say whether that's true or not, but it feels true, and I feel like this press release backs up that position somewhat. Uh, potentially. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure what that implies about boys or non-boys. Um, but... <laughs> I'm not, I'm not sure I like the implications either way, but... Um, it yeah, is making it's... sweeping generalisations, I'm not going to lie. Yeah, I, I suspect, and don't quote me on this, but I suspect that there are people in economics who are getting by with not massively scientific methods, perhaps, potentially? It's kind of impossible to test a lot of the theory. Mm, yeah. I mean, what are your sources here, apart from the last 40 <laughs> years? Yeah. <laughs> like just like the entire time yeah. capitalism as a whole it's going so well you guys it's really annoying because there's some really nice maths you can use but you know you'd have to put in the effort to learn it so 
I don't know. Well, why bother learning when we can make the computer do it? Mm. The computer will learn the maths for us. <laughs> what could go wrong? But yeah, I mean, totally aside from whether or not this is actually useful and applicable, I mean, as a pure mathematician, that is literally the last thing I ever worry about. <laughs> there's, some, <laughs> there's some really nice uh, maths in, in what they've done here, and they're sort of talking about, you know, having an equilibrium situation, and you don't necessarily go straight to the equilibrium, but you kind of end up with these cycles where things sort of spiral down to a point of equilibrium, and you can kind of imagine, like, an attractor or something that the situation sort of orbits around it and gets gradually closer to an equilibrium state and that kind of thing. So it, it's there's some really interesting stuff, but yeah, whether whether we'll actually be able to use it to predict economics, I don't know. Well, seeing as the main takeaway seems to be that economics is harder to figure out than children's playground games, I'm not going to hold out any great hope for a breakthrough because tic-tac-toe is one thing. Human beings are vastly more complicated than i would say even mario mm, yeah well this is why i stick to maths because everything just works like numbers just behave themselves at all times and you don't need to worry about them doing anything unexpected interacting with any of that squishy science which does also then lead into this final mathematics report looking at the source and nature of maths anxiety and what was it about maths that you felt compelling enough to go through the whole process of different levels of academia and now teaching in. Is it just the regular sense that it makes? Because apparently lots of people are not dealing with it. Well, I, I had a point, I guess, that I had to make a choice about what I was going to do with my life. Because obviously you pick your GCSEs, but no one cares. Um, and then <laughs> it was when I picked my A-levels that I sort of felt like the pressure was on to sort of decide what I wanted to do. And at the time... I mean, I freely admit this, I was watching a lot of ER and I got really into the idea of being a doctor. So I thought, okay, I'll do, I'll do the A-levels for that. So I did maths, chemistry, biology, and I was also advised, and I will never know to this day whether I was advised this because I was a girl, but they said, don't just do all four science subjects because that will make you very narrow. You'll need to do something else. So I ended up doing French as my fourth A-level. Although there were genuinely two boys in my year who did all four sciences. So who knows? Like, I don't know whether they were given that advice and ignored it or what. But anyway. Do you know if they're doctors now? I don't know. Because you have a doctorate. Yeah. Well, technically, yeah, I did make it there. Or were they uh, on the track for Oxbridge or something? Because I know <laughs> at my school, the kids who were like the top ones in the year who they thought might be Oxbridge candidates, they were like, yeah, do all sciences, whatever. Don't doesn't matter if you turn out boring as all hell. Well, <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure to what extent my A-level French has helped me. It's literally all gone now. I, it's, I mean, I love French so much, but it's it's very much all gone. But I did, as a result of taking maths at A-level, start to sort of change and, you know, realising that working in an ER would be quite awful. Like, it's a very difficult job and it's a lot harder than they make it look on ER. But the A-level maths content, I think, for me, was the point where it started to get really interesting. And I started to see things in there that made me think, actually, this subject isn't just adding numbers together it's not the stuff that you learn at school it is so much bigger than that and I started to see these little glimpses of discrete maths and probability and mechanics and the way that it all connects together and that was what made me think actually you know what I'm going to do maths because if I went down the medical route I was locked into I guess like a whatever it is seven year degree and then being a doctor for at least some time after that and I realized that if I did a maths degree that would be three years, and then I've got a huge number of options. Maths makes you incredibly versatile for any kind of career that you want to do, I guess, except for being a doctor. But you can then choose what you want to do, and, and my choice was then to carry on with a PhD, 
because I was getting on well with it and I hesitate to say it, but all my friends were carrying on with a PhD. So that was one of my other terrible reasons for doing that. But it was a very good decision, it turns out. And that was kind of how it all happened for me. But it, it wasn't my original goal. It was one of many subjects that I was interested in and did well in. But it wasn't something that immediately grabbed me when I was very young. I guess it is one of those subjects that you don't really start to see the more interesting parts of it until you start taking it into further and higher education. Yeah, and I think this is part of the job that I now do, because a lot of the time I'll go into a school or to a science festival, and I think the technical term for it is enrichment. So I'm, I'm talking about things which you don't necessarily normally get to cover in maths at school, but that are part of the subject that maybe give you a sense of where it's going or a sense of how it has applications in the real world. And I feel like that's one thing that I can do to try and inspire people a bit to think, actually, I'm going to crack on with this subject. I'm going to get on with it because it looks really interesting. But I, I don't know to what extent that works, but it's one approach, I guess. Well, apparently it is a much needed approach looking at the yeah. results <laughs> from the most recent survey from the Nuffield Foundation with the support of the James S. MacDonald Foundation, which finds huge amounts of teens they most recently done in the UK, but also in Italy are dealing with what they term maths anxiety of not being confident or comfortable or really settling into the idea of having skills in maths or using those skills in maths, even even if they are doing well in the tests. Mm. Which, relatable. It's an interesting thing because the term maths anxiety is, I've seen a lot more of it recently. I imagine that education scientists have been studying this for a very long time, but it's actually become a recognised concept. And they give a lot of reasons that they've identified as sort of a cause of this. So they say students that have had different teaching methods, which I guess is a kind of a thing that's unique to maths, that you can teach the same thing in lots of different ways. But maybe not. Maybe that's true in other subjects as well. They didn't get on well with the teacher. They moved from primary to secondary school and found the work much harder and couldn't cope with it. They found that there was pressure on them because of tests and exams. All of those things could be true of any subject. So I don't really understand why they specifically cause people to be anxious about maths. I think that one thing I've found in terms of the way that people interact with maths is that there's quite often this sense that maths is all about getting the right answer and being definitely right. And it's, I think, again, a thing that's unique to maths is that you can go into a maths exam, sit down and write all the right answers and get 100%. And I know some unbearable people at uni who did that. Um, I think the best I ever did was 99% in one module of one of my uh, A-level maths and further maths. I'm very pleased with myself for that. But, it, you know, it is possible to do this. And so everyone gets this impression that if you're doing maths, unless you're 100% right all the time, then you failed entirely as a mathematician. And it's such an unhelpful thing for people to believe. But it's the way that maths is taught because we're testing people by giving them exams to do, because that is an efficient, large-scale way to test people's ability, we're getting that kind of that message across to people unintentionally. And, you know, there are so many ways that you can be wrong in maths and learn much more from that than you would by being right. It's a wonderful subject for that, because you can make mistakes, you can learn from your mistakes, and you can learn more from having made a mistake than you can from just having done it correct first time. And certainly in research in maths, it's the interesting stuff is, is what happens when your theory is wrong or when your idea turns out to be something other than what you thought it was. But it's sort of become this behemoth for people that maths is difficult and parents tell their kids. I think this is mentioned in the report as one of the things that parents say to their kids. Things like, oh, don't worry if you're no good at maths. I was never any good at maths. Or they say, well, have you got maths? That's really difficult. And it's just so unhelpful because people are going in there set up to fail. 
because they're so worried about getting it right that they can't possibly imagine anything else. A friend of mine's just done a, a book. Like, almost everyone I know has just done a book. It's that kind of time <laughs> of my life. You know, when first of all, everyone's getting married and then everyone does a book and then... I think outside of academic circles, it's having a baby, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Maybe, yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> I mean, it takes about nine months. You have it at the end and then you're like, and what do I do now? Books, babies, same thing. Yeah, well, I mean, Hannah Fry's also had a baby. Uh, but yeah, Matt Parker's just done a book that's uh, called Humble Pie. And it's a wonderful pun title, but it's about mathematical errors that people have made. People have made mistakes mathematically and when that's been amusing and when that's been maybe less funny. Uh, And it's a really interesting book because I think his point with it is that it's not about being right, it's about trying. One thing that he often says is mathematicians are not people who find maths easy. They're people who enjoy the fact that it's difficult. And I think that's a really nice message to, to give to people. But it's a problem at school because the way that maths is taught, the way that the education system is formulated, there is this sense of your job is to get the right answers and that is all that is required of you. And that puts so much pressure on young people. And I know that in some countries, I think in Russia, they do quite a lot of maths exams orally. So they will just put you in a room with a mathematician and you just chat about something. And they can get a real sense from that of how good you are and how much you understand the subject and how well you're doing with it. Much more than you can by giving you one specific set of maths questions to answer. But of course, the resources required to assess maths in that way would be immense. So it's not at all practical. But I would love it if that was something we could do. You do oral exams in French, right? So why we couldn't have a maths oral exam that someone who maybe, you know, went into the maths written exam, had a bit of a panic, wasn't sure what to do, made a mess of it, came out tearing the hair out, could then go into an oral exam and someone could ask them maybe even the same questions, but get much more of a sense of how well they actually understand the subject and be able to assess them much more effectively. It's definitely part of a wider conversation about the way we assess people's ability in things. I mean, I know plenty of people who would have chosen to do coursework all the way through. And luckily, I was part of the last year group that got to do that in our exams. Whereas I'd have chosen to do exams over anything else because I could concentrate better on it. And you mentioned different education systems there. I know that some of the ways that mathematics especially is taught in Singapore and across different regions in Asia and Southeast Asia where they spend much more time working through the basics of addition and subtraction and multiplication and division before they get onto any of the complex algebra stuff. Mm. And just reinforcing those basics over and over again, making sure that everyone has the tools with which to build a more broad knowledge and a bigger understanding of maths, rather than just going through, we have to do math set A by the end of this month, and then set B by the end of next month, and we have to match this curriculum that we've set out. And if we're not at the end, then we've all failed is making for much more well-rounded senses of where you can go with that kind of education. It definitely Mm. has a particular cultural background compared to other subjects. You know, in arts subjects, if you're not good at it, oh, it's fine, you're just not suited to it in maths and science. But maths particularly, if you're not good at it, you're stupid. Mm. That's such a shame, isn't it? Because there's this massive chasm between maths and science and art subjects that everyone considers you know, oh, I'm not an arty person or I'm not a sciencey person or a mathsy person. And it's such a false dichotomy because maths is an incredibly creative subject. Science is creative because part of the process of learning about the world and understanding things is about having ideas and about putting those ideas together in new ways that haven't been done before. And it kind of winds me up when people say, oh, you know, STEM needs some art injecting into it. We need to come up with STEAM or some other acronym because there's not enough creativity in it. Obviously, there is a huge amount of creativity in it to anyone who works within it, but it's people who kind of look at it and think, oh, it's just the boring logical stuff with the numbers and the 
adding up and things. And that's certainly at university level and research level, that's not at all what maths is about. But the problem is that at school, you do need to learn those kind of basic things, those methods and techniques and things that you're going to rely on. And part of the problem, I think, is that because maths has got this, I guess, almost a layered structure to it. So, you know, you learn how to do counting and then you learn how to do addition and subtraction and then you learn concepts that build on all of those things. If at any stage, for whatever reason, you don't quite get it, like, you know, you miss a week of school or you have a bad day because something's gone wrong and you don't get what the teacher's talking about or whatever. When you come to the next lesson, you won't be able to get that as easily either because it all sort of builds. In history or geography, you'll talk about, you know, the Tudors and Stuarts for a few weeks or whatever, and then you'll come in and then the next thing will be, oh, we're doing ancient Rome now. I apologise to all history teachers everywhere. So that's a horrific <laughs> characterization of how it works, but it pretty much is. Definitely was my experience. <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't matter if you don't remember all the stuff about the Tudors and Stuarts because we're doing ancient Rome now and it's, it's separate. And I mean, of course, within history, which is a wonderful subject, there is the whole thing about evidence and sources and all of the really interesting kind of structure of it. But at school level, it's basically just knowledge that you are imbibing, whereas maths is methods and techniques that do build on top of each other. And if you get to a higher level and you've missed a layer, it really does set you back. And I can understand that and appreciate massively that people might come in and think, I have literally no idea what this person is talking about. I can't understand this at all. And as you say, they think, I must be stupid. And it's not that at all. It's just that they've missed a link somewhere. And if a school can provide the kind of support that someone who's in that situation can go, actually, maths teacher, I need to have a chat with you after class because I didn't quite get what you were talking about today. Can we go through that again? Or is there some kind of support I can access? But of course, kids aren't going to do that. They're not mature enough to make those kind of judgments. So teachers need to be able to have a small enough class maybe that they can assess where everyone's at with everything or do some kind of on-the-go oral assessment, asking people questions, getting answers from people to sort of judge whether or not what they're doing is effective. There's nothing more frustrating than, I've, I've discovered this when I'm now teaching at Sheffield Hallam, that you stand in front of a room of people and you say, okay, does everyone get that? Is that okay? And you get no response whatsoever. And you think, ah, because like, I don't know if that's because you're all sat there thinking, this is so easy. I don't understand why you're even asking or whether they're actually sat there going, I am terrified because I didn't understand a word of what you just said. And it's one of the real challenges of teaching, and I suspect in any subject, but in mathematics, it is so crucial to make sure that everyone is with you and following you. But this is one of the reasons why people get really anxious. And I think it says in the report that if you find that you're not doing as well in maths because you're anxious about it, because you're scared of it, that will then give you worse marks and then you'll go back in thinking, oh, I'm terrible at this, I've got really bad marks and that will make you more anxious and it just ends up kind of spiralling downwards until you, you're just completely destroyed by it. And I hate that idea because maths is such a wonderful subject and I love it so much and I want everyone to love it. And I hate this idea that people go into it and then have a bad experience with maths and that puts them off it. Sometimes for life, you know, I'll get in a taxi and they'll say, oh, where are you going? What do you do? And I'll say, oh, I'm a mathematician. And a lot of the time I'll get, oh, I hated maths at school, me. And I'm like, great. I don't really know how to respond to that. I, I hate taxis. <laughs> like, I, I don't know how you respond to that kind of question, but it's sort of such a common experience that people had a bad time with maths at school. And it winds me up so much because if we properly funded and invested in teaching, we could try and do something about that. And we'd have a next generation of people who were interested and engaged with maths and who could use the tools that maths gives you, the problem solving and the mathematical skills to be able to go and change the world. I love the fact that these articles are coming out that they're saying, you know, we've done this this mathematical model or we've, we've studied this thing. 
And it's one of those ways in which you can see that maths has this massive impact on everything. And when people go to, you know, science festivals and things, and they see scientists from all different branches of science studying things like biology, chemistry, physics, etc., they've got these stalls there and they say, oh, come and study biology, that you get to play with fuzzy animals and you get to look through microscopes at things. And they say, you know, come and study chemistry, we can explode stuff and react chemicals together and it'd be very exciting. And they're not saying, to do this, we're using an incredible amount of maths. Like, no one's saying, if you do chemistry, you are going to have your head stuck in mole calculations for hours and hours. And if you do biology, half of what you're doing is basically stats. No I one do is, not miss that. What it, <laughs> But, you know, no one's putting that up front as a thing, as like a way of promoting their subject. And it's because people have this aversity to maths, I guess. But I feel like it's so much a part of all of this study, of studying the world around us and, and making sense of things. And it should feel like much more of integrated with other subjects. You know, at school, you study maths in one room and you study chemistry and physics in other rooms. Even science, you know, you have one teacher for science and they do chemistry, physics and biology. They don't do maths. And I don't understand why there is this massive chasm between them at school. Like, it's not as massive as the chasm between there and the art classroom, but it's still, it feels like a separate subject. If it felt more like part of what everyone else was doing or part of a scientific kind of study, it might give it a bit more of a positive image. You know, people would see the use of it rather than thinking of it as this thing that they have to do. You know, all of these studies sort of show ways that people have used maths to analyse things which maybe aren't necessarily completely mathematical, like the way that people think about stuff or the way that people behave in situations. And I, I love that. So our thanks again to Dr. Katie Steckles. You can keep up with her on Twitter at Stex. That's S-T-E-C-K-S. And you can keep up with us at Eureka Nerdcast on Twitter and at Eureka Nerdcast at gmail.com. And if you love the show and you want to help support us, offset the costs of making and hosting all this lovely, lovely content for you, donate to our Kofi. And if you want more science news, then check out the rest of the shows on the Stimulus Network. You can find them at stimulus.network. But for now, that is all from us, so we'll leave you with just these two tantalising tidbits of scientific information. Did you know that, according to Ohio State University, social media has had remarkably small impact on American beliefs? Which... Ask some questions about how we ended up here. I guess we're all just like this anyway. I want to think better of humanity. Then think well of humanity with the people from the Biophysical Society who have been doing research on touching ducks. Or on ducks touching things. Really, who hasn't been touched by a duck? Do you want to hear a story about a time my brother was like really, really touched by some ducks? Maybe off mic? <laughs> sure. Long story short, he had to get changed before he got in the car on the way home. On that horrifying note, we'll leave you until next time. Quack quack from me. And goodbye from me. This podcast is brought to you by the Stimulus Network.